Good morning. Today, I, Kurt, was, Kurt was reminding us, um, but you were already greeting one another. So just to remind you that this is the first Sunday in Advent, you'll notice that we have these Advent candles, and because it's against fire code to actually light a candle, we have a fake one. But it's doing the job. Um, Advent is a, I know most of you here and those of you joining online know what Advent is, but just a quick reminder that Advent is a, is a time where it, it's almost pretentious. We almost pretend. Um, it's one of the few times in the Christian calendar that we, that we kind of understand what it means to live through the Jewish calendar. And here's what I mean by that. The Jewish people, when they remember Passover, for example, they don't remember it like we do. Like, I remember the facts of the case or the facts of the Passover. They believe that they're having that experience all over again. Uh, or for, so the, the, whatever their ancestors went through because of their ritual and rites, R-I-T-E-S, they, they are having the experience with their ancestors. Advent, we already know that Jesus has come. We, we all know this. We all know that, that uh, a couple of thousand years ago, the incarnation, God became flesh. We, we, we know it and we trust it and we believe it. And that's why we're in church. But in Advent, it's a time where the church says, we're going to look forward to the coming of Christ, even though we know he's already come. So this year, we're going to use some, more, some of the more traditional uh, ways of looking at it. Today, we're going to be in Isaiah with a messianic prophecy. And, uh, but it's not just that we're looking forward to the coming of Christ. We know he's already come, but we are looking forward to his return. So that's the beauty of Advent as a Christian, is we can, we can remember what it's like to anticipate the birth of Christ, and at the same time, we can remember that he's coming again. So we are actually anticipating what is to come, even though we're acting as if we're anticipating what has already come. There, there's a lot of different ways I could explain that. I'm just going to leave it at that. Today, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11, and it's, a, it's an unusual, it's not unusual for Isaiah, but it is unusual for us. Uh, this is not the kind of, of, of writing most of us read. It's not uh, pro prophetic words. Uh, in advance of the events are things that we, we can get a little... It's a little strange for Western minds to be thinking that God has given someone insight into something that has not yet happened, but assuring us that it will. Now, Isaiah is an unusual, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little background on the pastor, on the, on, on the book of Isaiah, then we'll pray, and then we'll read and move forward. So, um, Isaiah is an unusual book, and it, it's glorious, and there is evidence, although it's not indisputable, there's evidence that Isaiah was a member of the royal family. And uh, how he speaks to it, the, the, the access he has to kings, uh, if, if he wasn't actually a member of the royal family, he was very well connected. Now, he is a contemporary. He, he, he prophesied during the same era that Hosea and Amos, uh, two of the minor prophets, um, so there's a lot going on when he's speaking, and his prophecies and his ministry while he, he's about, he was kind of active for about 40 years, but what he's speaking to is about 150 years before they happen. 
And the amazing thing is, is that we can see through the rest of the Old Testament, we can see how the things that he encouraged people, warned them about how they came to pass. So Isaiah, when he was ministering, when he first started his, his, his ministry, he was both the divided kingdom. So Judah and Israel were both experiencing about 40 or 50 years of relative prosperity without a threat from the Assyrians. The Assyrians, um, at this point, at the beginning of his ministry, they were the world power. They were the ones threatening everybody. And there had been a time when the Assyrians were coming, they were working their way to Egypt, and they were coming, and, and the, the northern kingdom partnered with Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, and they stopped the Assyrian advance. Now, the history, the historians of the Assyrians don't mention why. They just talk about, well, we went down here, we kind of paused, and we went back, and we just kind of hung out here for 40 or 50 years. Well, what we know from Scripture is that their army in one night, God came through, the angel of death, and almost all of them died. Could you guys shut that for me? You guys see that? Okay. I can't see you because I'm blinded over here. So I'm going to just favor over here. The king of the northern kingdom had decided to trust God and to follow God, and it ended up being successful. And so this time of 40 or 50 years of relative prosperity without the Assyrian threat was one that they were enjoying. And then Isaiah shows up, and he starts talking about what is going to happen. The Assyrians are coming. And then later, he's talking about the Babylonians coming. And that's where we, we hear the story of Nebuchadnezzar and all of that. So Isaiah starts talking about what God is going to allow because of the faithlessness of the people and the waywardness of the kings. So it's a strange, it's a strange thing because he's talking about first the Assyrian threat, and then later he's talking about the Babylonian threat. There's a shift of power during this 150-year period. Now, the thing about the book of Isaiah is the book of Isaiah, some would say, is like a mini Bible. It has, it has uh, someone who has a, who has a vision, who, who's kind of taken up into the heavens, that's Isaiah, much like John uh, the Apostle. Uh, there's, a, there's a beginning, and then there's a pause, and then there's an end, so it's the Old and New Testament. The first part talks a lot about judgment. The second half talks a lot about hope. And so if you want to get a picture of God's vision and mission for his people across history, Isaiah is a pretty good place to land although it is a difficult read for many of us because there's so much poetry and so much wisdom literature, and there is prose in there as well. So what we're going to be talking about today is, is, is an encouragement from Isaiah to the people of God that because the day of the Lord, that's never, almost never a positive thing in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. Um, we know that the day of the Lord is also the reign of Christ. That when he showed up and he started uh, walking and talking and knowing and loving us, and then all the way up to the crucifixion, the uh, death, and then the resurrection and ascension, the day of the Lord. That's the day that the Lord established his kingdom. And that is what this passage is talking about. Hundreds, about 700, six to 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So let me pray. We'll read, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little, bit of back, a little bit of background on the 
illustration, the allusions, the, the, the symbology, the sim- symbolism here. So, sorry, hard to find those words. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, this is a glorious passage, and it's one that Christians have held on to for years. It's a way of seeing that you knew in advance that you were king, not only of space, not only of the earth, but of time itself. It reminds us that you are one who sets up and takes down kingdoms and nations. It reminds us that you are sovereign and that no one, nothing, can deter you. That you know all things that are to come, and you often warn your people so that they have a chance to repent. Lord, as we anticipate the return of Christ and as we anticipate the birth of our Savior in this Christmas season, we ask you to remind us whose we are and remind us of your great love for us. And Lord, for this morning, give me the words to say and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive what you would have us hear, see, and receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So have you ever been walking in the woods and you see an old a big one, like an old big tree that, that had either been felled, had been cut down and felled, or had just gotten old and died and fallen over, and there's a stump. So you, you've walked, and, and sometimes those stumps, they're rotten. They're rotten. They've got leaves all piled in the middle of them. They're hollow on the inside. And you can reach down on, on, on some of that bark or some of the outside of the inside of the tree, and you could just kind of break it off. It's kind of soggy. Sometimes you see lichen or, or um, some kind of like mushrooms growing up on the side of it, just old and rotten. See, the forest was often a symbol that God gave of, of God's people in the world, that, that they're like a great forest. And so trees and forests um, and, and there was this promise with, with God that God had given to David. You remember David, the king, that he was the youngest of Jesse's kids and uh, of his sons. And, and, and when, when, he, when he, Jesse showed up, showed all of his other kids, um, God's like, no, no, you got another one. Where's the other one? Where's the young one? Where's the one that, that, that's the least of these? And then David, God raised David up and made some promises to David that we all hold on to. And we'll see this when we read the genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew at the very last Sunday of Advent, that, that Matthew wanted to make sure we understood that the promise that we're hearing about here is one that had been fulfilled. But you'll remember that, that, that Jesse was David's dad, David was a king, and David, someone from David's line would sit on the throne forever, even though during Isaiah's time, it looks like that line is falling apart. And the people, the kings, had been because it was so prosperous, they had not been faithful. And so then we hear about this little thing, and you've seen it in your driveways in the summer. When you're in your driveways, you're walking down, you're walking on your driveway, and you're blowing the, the, the stuff off after, you know, the clippings, and you're like, there's that dandelion growing in that crack, or that crabgrass, or even just grass growing in that crack. There's always, how does it do that? I mean, it's just a little bit of dirt that made it in that little crack, and then it, all of a sudden it's growing up, and you've got to take a roundup or a torch or something to get rid of it, or you've got to take one of those little things. And, and it's, 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 it's as if nothing can stop nature from doing what nature's going to do. 
And if you've seen movies where those, those dystopian futures in, in cities where there's lions and tigers or, 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 or deer roaming the streets of Manhattan and, and the, the, there's vines growing all the way up a building, there's a reason for me saying all this stuff, trust me. Uh, we can see how it takes over. And we can remember that Jesus, when he was walking the earth, and he, he gave this, this analogy, he says, faith as small as a mustard seed. Remember that? Did it grow? It's the smallest of seeds. It grows up and birds make a nest in it, all that kind of stuff. He knew, we don't always, that mustard plants, they grow like ferns with all of their root system underground. Well, root systems are always underground, but you cut down a mustard seed plant, it's going to pop up somewhere else. Once the seed has taken root, it is almost impossible to get rid of. That is something that God is saying through Isaiah here. He talks about a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. The promise that God made of, of, of David's throne, that someone would always be sitting forever and ever, would always be sitting on David's throne, that even though it looks like that, that forest had been raised, had been just knocked down, destroyed by the Assyrians, that even though there seems to be no hope for the people whatsoever, to complete and utter destruction, if you walk through that, the stump field and you see Jesse's stump, you will see new life growing from it. That's this is how it reads. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. That's a messianic, messianic, prophecy given to people who things are really good for, but they can feel the threat coming. And he says, it's going to get ugly. Just much like Jeremiah, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and, and, and takes, takes down the city and takes uh, Daniel and, and, and others, you know, the whole book of Daniel, that whole thing, he, he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And he gave him that promise right before 70 years in exile. The same thing is happening here. Isaiah gets a word from the Lord that no matter what you see, no matter how bad it gets, and it will get bad, you are going to suffer. It's going to get ugly. You're going to see much destruction. But from destruction comes hope. From destruction, even though it looks like all the promises I've made are not true, all the it seems as if I have repented of my favor of you. I want you to know what you're going to see. Out of destruction will come fruit. Out of the stump, the rotting stump of Jesse, will come a new shoot, a branch that will bear fruit. And you'll remember Jesus in John 15 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. My father's the gardener. It's that whole motif, that whole idea of the, the forest and the vine. Those are all ways that God talks about his people. So why? Why this today? Where's your hope? 
Are you hopeful about where our world is headed? Are you hopeful about where our country is headed? Are you hopeful about that things are going to be good again? Isaiah spoke about things that took place from his time to 150 years later. I do not have the gift of of Isaiah, but I do have the gift of Isaiah's words. And so do you. You and I have been entrusted with the very word of God. He has not just made it available. He's actually said, write it on your heart. Make it not just so that it's something that you could go to, but make it be something that is part of you. And if the word of God is part of you, if you trust the sovereign God, the one who sets up and tears down nations, the one who can just with his finger flick a king and he'll just go away, the one who who could foresee Assyria coming and taking down both Judah and Israel, and he can foresee that, that that Nebuchadnezzar is going to rise up and he's going to take down Assyria and then Nebuchadnezzar is going to come down and destroy everything that is the people of God, everything that the people of God held on to. He's going to take him away for 70 years. But even then, Cyrus is going to proclaim and declare that they're allowed to go back and the temple will be rebuilt. The God that you worship, the God that you serve, the God that loves you dearly and intimately and personally, he, know, he, he can see what is not yet. Because to him, future, present, and past are all present. That is the God who showed up as a baby. That is the God who walked and talked and knew and loved Adam and Eve in the garden and the disciples in the first century. That is the God who has the United States of America in his hand. It's also the God that has Israel in his hand and Uzbekistan in his hand. And Syria, and Iraq, and Iran. He's a God that isn't done yet. If he were, we would see Jesus coming on the clouds. If he were, we would know, because we would be with him. He's not done yet. And so there's hope. If you look back over the course of human history that you see in Scripture, you have what's called the cycle of apostasy throughout the book of Judges. The people are faithful, and then they're not, and they, and, and they turn to really wicked ways. They, they, they worship self, or they worship Baal, or they worship Zerubbabel. They just don't, they don't trust God, and he calls them out. And if they don't turn back, he allows the consequences of their behavior to be realized. And if they do, do turn back, he forgives them and changes things. You see it from Adam and Eve, you see it with the whole earth with, before Noah, and you see it all the way through to the end of Revelation, that God is patient, that God cares about human beings, that God sees when things get easy for us, we turn away. And so he allows things to get hard for us so that we might turn back. He never forces his will on us. He's always inviting. And what he's telling the people through Isaiah at that time is turn and trust me. Just like the northern kingdom had, 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 had listened to God and had, and had allied with Syria 
and push back the Assyrian advance. They didn't do it. God did it. But it was because they said, they listened and they said, yes, Lord, that he, he put them back and gave them 50, 40 to 50 years of prosperity and peace. And when it's about to happen again, they're given the same opportunity to trust God and not trust self, not ally with this and not ally with that and not to try to do this and not to try to do that, but just trust God. And they didn't. Destruction came. But even in the midst of destruction, God says, I'm not done. My promises still stand firm. And Advent is when we hang on to the promises of God. We, he promised us a Savior and he sent one. But everything that Jesus had promised, all the promises of God have not yet been fulfilled. Think about it. If you just keep reading down in Isaiah, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will, die or will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. We seen any of that? The meek will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. The things that Jesus says, he came as the lamb to be sacrificed and he's returning as the lion of Judah. We live in already and not yet. Already the kingdom of God has been established. It is not yet complete or fulfilled. Many of the promises that Isaiah himself made have been fulfilled, and yet some have not. It's Advent. It's a time when we decide to trust God in his promises. So no matter how bad it's getting, God asks his people to do one thing. Seek me. My people that are called by my name will humble themselves. Confess their sins. Return to me. I will hear their prayers. I will honor their confession and I will heal their land. This is a time, people of God, to be the people of God. To not return evil with evil, but evil with kindness. To not to not do what comes natural to us, but to do what comes natural to God. It looks hopeless to me if I didn't have Christ. I'm going to tell you an experiment that I've told you before, but I haven't found one that's better. So it's worth repeating in my mind. It might not be in yours. But I was a psychology student at Hope College. I graduated back in 1988. And I, used, and I still kind of to this day read some psychological uh, studies and, and findings because I want to know how humanity defines itself, how it explains itself. And then I compare it to what the scripture says about what God says about humanity, how God defines humanity, how God sees us. And often they, they, they mesh and often they don't. But there's one experiment done with Norwegian field rats that I just still find fascinating. I think it's kind of torturous to the rats, but I find fascinating that they put these Norwegian field, wa- field rats like in a five-gallon bucket, f- half full of water, and they just let them swim until they drown. And some would make it, the stronger ones would make it 20, 24 hours. 
And then that was the control group. The other one, the other group, they would put a, a Norwegian field rat in the bucket of water, and they would let it get to the point where it goes under the water, pops back up, goes under the water, right before it's drowning. And they would take it out and just hold it in the open air until it catches, caught its breath, and they put it back in there. And then they do it again. They do it again. They do it again. The ones they gave a 10 to 15 second break several times lasted two to three times longer before drowning than the ones that had no hope. Their understanding of it was hope was the driver. That wasn't enough rest to make double or triple the amount of survival time. It was the rat learned that someone might rescue. And so they lasted longer, they held on longer. The only difference between this rat and that rat is hope of rescue. What's the difference between us and the rest of the world around us? Hope. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Now shake your fist at the television, read the news and go, can you believe it? Do all that stuff. Whatever, makes, whatever helps you purge a little bit. But then turn to God and say, Lord, save us. Turn to God and say, Lord, we've turned away from you. But as for me and my household, you can fill in the sentences. Advent is the time where the unthinkable, the impossible, the stuff that seems naive to hang on to is what God commands us to do. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. I don't see much good, but I've been commanded to hope, to hang on, to believe that God may indeed rescue me, us, the world, the way the psychology experiments rescued the field rat that was about to drown. Is it possible that God's not done with humanity yet? Is it possible that he's going to use you to show your neighbor that he's not done? Is it possible that people are looking for someone who has hope? And if you abandon hope, they have no one to hang on to. There's an old saying that says, hang on, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Hang on to your hope. And if you've lost hope, hang on to someone that has it. Can we be the someone that has it? Can we be people that have our eyebrows up no matter how bad it gets? Can we be people that, that are unshaken, unafraid, unconcerned? Not saying that we don't, we don't care, but we know the one who holds this nation and this world in his hands that we will not be shaken because God cannot be shaken. Do you know that God cannot be deterred? 
No one can stop what God desires to do. And God knows what's happening next year. He knows what's happening in 2024. He knows what's happening in 2050. He knows. He knows if none of those, if some of those years never come to be. He knows. And he adores you specifically. He has an intimate knowledge of your thoughts, your fears, your body, your hopes, your dreams, and your concerns. And he says the same thing he's always said. I'm looking at you. Look at me. Looking at you. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at you. Stop being worried about you. Stop being, look at me because I'm looking at you. You know what changes right there? Is we get to trust that the God of the universe sees you. And there's an assurance in God's vision of you, God seeing you, God looking at you, God gazing upon you. As you gaze upon him, he's gazing upon you. And you know what goes away? The wrong kind of fear. Folks, write this on your, write this on your heart. Understand that he used someone like Isaiah to assure people 150 years in advance. And he's doing the same thing for you and I today. I don't have specifics, but I do know who does. I don't know the future, but I do know the one who does. And I don't know what God's going to do, but I do know he's not done. He's not done with you. He's not done with us. He's not done with this nation. And he's not done with this world. And he is sovereign over all of them. Whether our leaders are wayward, whether our people are faithless, God is not done. And we can take great comfort in just that and nothing more. Because as you look at him and he looks at you, you know whose you are. So we can approach him with confidence. And we can be confident in a fickle, fear-filled, and accusatory world. The people of God were told time and time and time again their Savior's coming. And he did. And we've been told time and time and time again that he's coming back. And he will. Doubt it if you will, but it won't change God because God cannot be deterred. Let's pray. Lord, let us see the shoot that comes from the stump. Let us see Jesus in all that he was, but more than that, Lord, all that he is and all that he will be because he never changes, but we do. Lord, during this Advent season, as we walk the next four weeks, anticipating your return, give us courage and confidence and a quiet boldness that just reminds the world that there's something more. And the one who is something more cannot be deterred, will not be shaken, and will never break the promise. Help us be confident in that. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has no hope, put them in touch with someone who does so they can hang on to someone who's hanging on to you. Pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.